0: Open your Bibles, would you, to uh, Philippians chapter 4, one verse today, and uh, you'll be able to memorize the passage for uh, today, if you're paying attention. You probably already know it. Um, As you're looking up, chapter 4, verse 4, at the very beginning of our study of Philippians, and we're one week away from wrapping this thing up, uh, we told you that the theme, Paul's theme and thought throughout this chapter is consistently coming back to the issue of joy. Um, In fact, we we told you then out of the 103 verses, four chapters, there is some 16 or 17 references to rejoice or have joy. And so most scholars would say, I mean, that's his his punchline here to have joy. We've seen, including our text today, uh, three commandments to rejoice in the Lord. He said it in chapter 2, verse 18, to be glad and rejoice with him. In chapter 3, verse 1, he commands the brothers to rejoice in the Lord. And then here, verse 4, which is our text today, he says... Rejoice in the Lord always. Now you finish it. Yeah, again I say rejoice. Everyone knows that that verse. Um, In fact, if all you ever had about God's command to rejoice is the first five words of this first phrase, you've got quite a bit. Because in these first five words, you have the what, when, and why of rejoicing. The what is rejoice. The when is uh, what? Always. Okay, so you've just lost every excuse right there on rejo- re- not rejoicing. Um, always. Uh, no exceptions, no excuses, no loopholes. Always. His command is very specific and particular. The church, God's people, rejoice all the time and not get pushed around by their circumstances. And then he says the why. It's that phrase I told you last week is one of his favorite phrases, in the Lord. In fact, you can't see any command that Paul brings in a text and not have him chase it from the very beginning. The essence why the command exists is because of what we celebrate in the Lord together. That we uh, have a father who loves us with an everlasting love. He is a perfect dad. He's gracious in all his ways. He is good and he is sovereign. Therefore, we rejoice always. Make sense? So don't ever think that somehow Paul is indifferent to your circumstances or doesn't care about your story. He's talking from a higher position in light of all these wonderful, glorious things that God has done and given to us in Christ, therefore. And every command flows out of that, right? So let me ask you a question because you're all into this. I can see it on your faces. Let me give you a question. Do you rejoice always? That little grin on your face tells me my answer. Um, some of you are better at it than others, um, but nobody's perfect. From time to time, we choose complaint rather than rejoicing. Isn't it true? Okay, we all do that. And Paul is pretty clear here. He says to don't just rejoice regularly. He says rejoice always, always. So says almost kind of hear like a second part to Paul's Verse 4 here, you can hear it in the background, him saying, okay, you don't like your job? Rejoice anyway. Got a difficult marriage? Rejoice anyway. You got a health problem? Something scaring you to death? Rejoice anyway. You Can't pay your bills? Rejoice anyway. And he could go on and on, and I could as well, but you get the point. He, he is not... Um, pulling any punches when he's talking about the kind of joy the church should express. In essence, he says, church, do you recall what Christ has done and is doing for you? And that's what Paul always has in his mind. In view of the mercy of God, therefore, and his therefore here is rejoice always. In view of all this wonderful things that are ours in Christ, rejoice. In essence, it is seeing all the blessings compared to all the trouble. And in Paul's mind, and in in God's mind, one far outweighs the other. What God has done for you is greater than any trouble you find yourself in. Do you understand? So this is not an absurd command. This isn't an insensitive one. This is a clearly directive one from his understanding of what we have in Christ. But I got to stop here and kind of confront the troubling part. The troubling part is the church has addressed and kind of embraced a twisted version definition of joy. In fact, it's it's kinda, I don't think it's intentional, but I think because of the being in our culture, we've kind of embraced a somewhat pseudo uh, instruction or understanding of the de- definition of joy. It's like the world's, the world says what joy is and where you find it. And so we kind of are programmed that way. Here's where I'm supposed to find it. The fact it's defined this way in, in dictionaries um, as a feeling of great pleasure and happiness. Webster says this, the emotion evoked by well-being, success, or good fortune, or by the prospect of possessing what one desires. And there you have it, don't you? You have a very specific about you, about little things, about small things coming your way as the definition of joy. That's how the world defines it. And most people, believe it or not, think of joy like instinctively, not cognitively, but instinctively kind of that way, even Christians. Joy is having it my way. Joy is having it be well. Joy is having it be successful. That, that's sort of how we uh, kind of subconsciously think about it. And this is how it would go. If everything is going your way, <laughs> have joy. But you have discovered a problem in that sentence, I hope. If you only look at your own life, you've got an issue. And that is you don't ever have things go your way all the time, right? In fact, it's rarely ever your way exactly the way you would want it so what do you do then if you are truly just kind of subconsciously believing the world's definition of joy that it's about having things your way and it can't go your way now what do you do what do you do well here's what the world says to do about that be miserable and share your miserable with other miserable people that that's that's what it says to do and don't you tell me that's not how it works because that's exactly how it works Every one of us in here, when we lose the sight of God's gospel and start to grump about things that are in our life, we find other people who will share our grump and we'll go talk about it and it'll be our, it'll be our mode and we won't be rejoicing. We'll be complaining. Tell me I'm wrong. I didn't think so. Um, Listen, from Paul's vantage point, joy is to be the personality of the church. You know how you bump into people and you go, man, he's really friendly or he's really scary or, you know, you got different personalities out there. When the world bumps into the church, it should experience joy. The personality of the church is joy. We're supposed to see things through new eyes, right? The new eyes that God gives us. We're born again to new life and so this new life sees things different ways. Um, It is eyes that have been opened by the giver of life and the definer of life to see ourselves and our stories in a whole transformed new way. I don't just look at myself and all the circumstances like I used to. The gospel, God's gospel changes how I see these things. And we say something almost like wrote around here, That that God does all things for my good and His glory. We say those things. That's even turned into a bumper sticker. But that's truly no kidding. The way you're supposed to see things with new eyes. God's doing something good. That's all He can do, and His good is for my good. That's how this thing works out, and that's what it's supposed to be. But the reality is, there's a challenge with that sometimes. one pastor defined joy this way, so we got to get our head around a kind of a more accurate version of joy, a biblical joy. One pastor defined Christian joy as a good feeling in the soul produced by the Holy Spirit as he causes us to see the beauty of Christ in the word and in the world. And that's a good definition, a little long in, in the tooth, but, but good. I, I've got my own paraphrase to kind of keep it short. Joy is far deeper than happiness and and pleasure. Joy is my feeling when I realize that God is filling all of my lack with all of his greatness. Whatever I lack, he's good to fill it in, however he wants. And that truly is the definition of joy, is understanding that. When I know that he really has me in those ways. Um, So how can we have joy when things aren't going so well? I think that's probably the question we should work on today. It's clear that Paul thinks through the gospel lens when he says the command to have joy always, and it's clear from your nods and your grins that you don't have joy always, and yet that's the commands. How do we get closer to that? How do we actually pursue those things? Let me show you a grid to look through. Chapter one of Philippians, we've already studied this passage, but we're going to see kind of a short little brief um, kind of experience for Paul regarding joy himself and we're going to learn from his example. One old preacher said that there are two kinds of joy in the world. There's a because of joy and in spite of joy. What Paul is preaching is the in spite of joy, in spite of circumstances, in spite of trouble, I have joy in the Lord. One is uh, totally circumstantial and fleeting. The other thrives in trouble. They're different. One is... Uh, the way of the world. The other one is the way of God's people. One is where the majority spend their time, and one is where the people of faith actually end up seeing their God. So one is way better than the other. Um, So let me just offer you a couple of guarantees. You don't get that often in church, but here's a few. Uh, If you can grasp the treasure of joy as Paul preaches it, then it will change the rest of your life. There's a guarantee There's also another guarantee that if uh, happiness and pleasure is all that you want and that's what you think it's all about, then I can predict your future. You're going to be miserable and you're going to have a lot of change in your life because people who pursue pleasure and happiness, all they can do is change out people, change out job, change out circumstances and locations to try to chase a man-made joy. That's all you can do. Just keep trading it out, trading it out, trading it out. Some of you have that story in here. You're miserable from the run. And so this, the sound of joy for everything is attractive, but it sounds like crazy talk to you because you've managed your own version of joy and you've chased it. And you do have like that legacy of change in you. You can't stick in the same church. You can't stick in the same place. You got to keep moving because when you, when you get uh, disappointed, you have to get rid of what disappoints you. You have to, uh, when you're not content... Pursue your contentment in man-made ways. That's, that's how the wrong definition works. But I think Paul wants us to know what real joy is, a kind of joy that doesn't blow around in the wind like that, isn't so fleeting like that. And it's in this chapter, chapter 1, verses uh, 12 through 21, we're going to see kind of an experience from Paul of how he sees circumstances. Um, and actually, how he learned joy, or how he knows joy, and obviously he's teaching the church in Philippi this as well. Um, it's really important not to ever forget the background from which Paul is writing. If you want to get the real strength behind the words, don't ever forget that this man has been in prison for four years. He's on death row, and he's going to die. This is his last book. Now, how much he knew about I don't, I'm not certain. But he knows he's in jail. He's been in jail, falsely charged. He doesn't deserve to be there, and he's there. And it's this man who says, have joy always. Now There's some strength when you see it from that position. This is not, by the way, the first time Paul has said things about his missionary experience, is it? I mean, if you want to look at a legacy of a man, he's had trouble like the moment he met Jesus. He lost his eyesight when he met Jesus. And from then on, it's been uphill. But he's always had joy. Look at 2 Corinthians chapter 11 for a second. I'm just going to remind you of... of, of, kind of his narrative of his experience being a missionary. Verse 24 says, five times I received at the hands of the Jews 40 lashes less one. That is, that is the uh, statement of just short of death because 40 lashes was considered a kind of the level in which a man would die from beatings and he would say 40 minus one. I almost died five times by, by the lash. And Then he says, uh, three times I was beaten with rods, once I was stoned, three times I was shipwrecked, the night and day I was adrift at sea on frequent journeys, uh, in danger from rivers, danger from robbers, danger of my own people, danger from Gentiles, danger uh, in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from the false brothers, in toil and hardship, through many a sleepless night, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure, and apart from other things, there is the daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all the churches." that's a pretty strong list and now here he is sitting in jail um waiting to die and that is his story and it is out of that story that paul says rejoice in the lord always and again i say rejoice now somebody like that has every right to say this and we should sit up and listen to it so that's what we want to do today um let me do this let's try to answer the the why and the how of paul's joy um I think it's very important for us to do that, uh, to discover this in spite of joy, because that's what Paul has. Here's the first thing, verses 12 through 14. I, I think it's obvious that Jesus changes how Paul sees things, and that's how he can arrive at joy. He says in verse 12, I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel, so that it's become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ." And most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Paul saw his trouble advancing the gospel, a testimony to those who are watching, and confidence to the church who is kind of experiencing his suffering from a distance. He saw that. He saw all those things that God was doing. Let me ask you a question. Change the subject. Your trouble, what do you see? What can you see? Typically, what people see is just blurry things. Nothing's clear in trouble. All they know is the pain of the trouble, and we somehow lose our balance in those moments because we can't see anything else but the issue. And we won't look past it to see, oh, God is affecting my sister. God is changing my family. God is working in my church. God is having a testimony at work. It's like a a bigger picture. You just have to get away from the suffering to see the thing, and Paul could do that. Jesus had changed Paul so much, Um, that he could see now what God was doing in the midst of his circumstances. From time to time, I use an illustration that doesn't work, so this might be one of them, so hang on there. Um, I have, I like working on cars, like a lot. Like, it's a big hobby of mine. In my garage, I have a welder, a MIG welder. I'll I'll get you there, trust me. Um, A welder simply does this. Through electricity, it creates a molten pool of metal to join pieces together. Are we cool? Everyone gets that, okay? Well... When you strike an arc, it, it is just, it's got great UV rays and it's so bright like the sun, it'll blind you if you stare at that. So they give you a mask to wear. The mask happens to be so dark you cannot see. You can't see it. So when you get ready to weld something, you can't see the pieces. You can't see what you're doing. You don't see the, stri- the, the welding rod. You don't see anything until the light arrives. And once the light, the, as bright as the sun starts showing up, you can see what you're doing and the goal of this whole thing. It's sort of how it works with, with a believer. When Christ really is the lens with which you look through, you can see what he's doing. You can see your trouble in different ways. You can see, well, God, I, yeah, it's no fun. Yeah, it's difficult. It's a trouble. But I'm trying to see where you're moving. I'm watching how you're blessing. I see the things that would not have happened unless that didn't take place. And that's an amazing, amazing truth that Paul Um, expressing here. So I guess we should ask the question, do you see God in your trouble? Can you see through the trouble? Are you close enough to God to see his shadow when he moves into your difficult circumstances? Because that's what Paul is really leaning into here in verses 12 through 14. James in his uh, epistle in chapter one starts with the same kind of theme and truth when he says consider it joy, pure joy my brothers when you encounter trials of various kinds because you know the testing of your faith develops perseverance and perseverance will finish its work and making you mature, complete, not lacking anything. That's what he says. So in that you almost have the same kind of uh, outline as Paul. He says what? Have joy, when, in every circumstance. The why here is kind of interesting because he says God's doing something great with you. He's making you mature, complete, not liking anything. There's going to be a perseverance in you that wouldn't exist otherwise. And so can you get joyous about trouble when you know that the good that goes out of it wouldn't have happened without the trouble? If you can see from the vantage point of the gospel, you can. If you know he's a good father who is shaping you into his image, then you can. It's clear that's what Paul has in mind here. James had that perspective. Paul has that perspective. That God's at work even in Paul's mind when he's sitting here rotting in prison. gospel spreading and the church is becoming confident. That is what I would call an in spite of joy, yeah? Would you agree? Okay, let me add one more part to this. Um, Paul had that kind of joy because Jesus changed what Paul cared about. Look at verses 15 through 18. Some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition, but not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. What then? I mean, think about that. Two contrasts. Some good guys out there who are caring for me, and there are some guys out there who are just kind of in rivalry with me, envious of me. What do we do about them? Here's what He says, Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I what? Come on, you got to do better than that. In that I what? Rejoice. Rejoice. How would you handle a story like that? These guys are not for my good. All they want to do is take the kind of the platform to run up their reputation. And what does he say? At least Christ is being proclaimed. At least, at least he's being preached, right? And that was what's important to him. <clears throat> what's important to you? I mean, that's really what it comes down to, really basic questions. If Paul can be all done with something bad and go, well, I can see the good there. God, Christ is being preached. What's important to you? Is there a possibility, do you think, that you don't have this kind of lasting in spite of joy because Christ isn't your priority? And maybe you just got it out of whack. Christ is in there somewhere, but he's not on the top of the list. He's kind of in there somewhere. And so, when whatever is at the top of your list suffers, it comes on apart. Does it make sense? It's worth asking the question. Paul is clear in what he saw God doing in spite of his trouble. He cared about the gospel and the proclamation of Christ. But I want you to see something else here in verses 19 and 20. Uh, Paul had this kind of in spite of joy because he had the power of the Holy Spirit. Same as you. Look at verse 19. He says, for I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will, not turn, out for my, uh, this will turn out for my deliverance, as it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed, but that with full courage now, as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. I have to make some assumptions that you're a believer. You confess your need. You're poor in spirit. You can't fix your problem of sin. So you need a savior. And so you exclusively go to the only hope of man. That is Jesus Christ. And you confess him as Lord. And you confess your sins. And by faith and repentance you come. And you believe. And in that you have also the Holy Spirit. The gift of the Spirit resides in every believer who confesses that. And so just as much as you can marvel at what Paul is doing and how he's responded to this, you need to remember this. You have the same voice of the Spirit as Paul. You have the same encouragement of the Spirit as Paul does. You have the same conviction, the same strength as Paul does here. It's a God-empowered joy is what he's saying. I can see things differently than I did before. I can prioritize differently than I could before. And ultimately, when it's all said and done, I know God's doing a work in me. The power of the Spirit is in me. Listen, isn't it wonderful to know that when Paul says, I command you to have joy always, that God is coming alongside you to empower you with the Spirit to have joy always? that you're not left out on your own, just kind of in your flesh trying to sort out spiritual things. You have the driving force of the Holy Spirit of God making you like that. Isn't that awesome? So Paul says that. I'll give you one last kind of driving force behind this joy that Paul had. Paul had an unchanging purpose to his life. Look at verse 21. This is a verse you all know, and I probably don't even have to read it. For me to live is Christ and to die... His gain. That's a purpose statement right there. Paul again facing death in prison and he says, I got a reason to live. It's Christ. That's why. In fact, I'm fearless in death. You know why? Christ. Same, same drive behind both. I can live for Christ. I can die because of Christ. I am fearless." From time to time, I mean, it's really trendy in our culture, the, the kind of growing suicidal problems in our world. It's not unique to America. I read an article this summer from a, about a, a young 14-year-old girl in another part of the world, and uh, she was making statements before she committed suicide, assisted, by the way, and, and uh, her statement was, I can, I'm breathing, but I'm not alive. You know, I got a pulse, but I'm really dead. And that statement right there might seem extreme, but a lot of people live like that in our world, you know? Yeah, I I got a pulse, but I'm not here. And uh, it's interesting to me how that is a typical description of life without Jesus. Without Christ, trouble can feel like death. To be honest with you, that's why it feels like death, because there is no Christ in the trouble. But for those of us who are Christians um, with Christ, our trouble, even clu- including death, can be our life because he says to die is gain. You always have Christ. In the difficulties, I have Christ. With, even in death, I have Christ. And the reason why that's joy to him is because you can't be lost, you can't be dropped, and you will never be forgotten. In Christ, the promise of the Father for you who confess him, you will never be left to your circumstances. You're never going to be kind of pushed away No one will snatch you from his hand. You're forever loved. You're as secure as you could possibly be in the Father's affections. And Paul knew that. He said, I can can be here and suffer. I got Christ. If they kill me, all good. I have Christ. You can't lose as a follower of Christ. You understand why he could say, I have joy in all circumstances because I always have Christ. Always. There's always that. But you know the contrast to the world The world says joy is something you buy or drink or sleep with or own. It's always something. But real joy, the kind of joy that Paul talks about here in chapter 4, chapter 3, chapter 1, and chapter 2, doesn't blow away every five seconds like all these other temporal joys in our world that we chase. Jesus is amazing, and he offers us by faith this wonderful joy And this relationship to be fully known and fully loved by a God who made you, you can't get better than that. No pretending, no staging, no shaping up and sorting yourself out to present yourself to God to somehow have him measure you and you fit the qualifications. No, you can be as messed up as you are and you stand before the Father and he already knows the story. You just come and say, help, and he gives it fully known, and fully loved when we confess him as Lord and Savior. Being loved by a God who is good. We sang it. You sang it. I watched you sing it. Who is good, and by the way, is for your good. He couldn't be good if he wasn't for your good. He is both about goodness in the world, and the universe, and also good for his people. It brings a kind of a joy that, you know, Paul talks about here. Now, let me finish with a couple of parting shots at you. Um, that sounded bad. I didn't mean it like that. <laughs> if this sounds like crazy talk to you, who would have joy in tough times? Like, you don't know my story, Tim. You're just being, you're just being flippant. Like, it's preacher talk. It doesn't work. Um, then I think we have to start here. It's possible that you don't know the joy of the Lord because you don't know the Lord of joy. I don't know. If Paul's statement of in, what we have in Christ, and all that that means, the the tidal wave of truth behind what we are in Christ, that brought Paul's mind to Whether I live, whether I die, I have Christ, I'm good, I'm good no matter what, I can have joy always. If that sounds stupid to you and crazy to you, there's a possibility that you're more comfortable with church than you are with Christ and you come here because you like the thing and you like the worship, you like the stuff, you like the trappings of church and it kind of makes you feel good about yourself, but you've never submitted yourself to Jesus as Lord and Savior. And so joy like this in trouble sounds stupid, sounds crazy, sounds insane. I'm not saying this is your condition, I'm asking you to sort your own heart. And if, if you're looking at your particular trouble and go, no way, no way, God is not getting my joy in that, would you please ask a question about what you confess and what you trust? Because you don't confess your sins and you don't trust in Jesus, you have no hope and there is no reason why you should have joy that is in every circumstance. Does that make sense? Okay, let me give you one other thought. I want you to remember and have it stick deeply in you that artificial efforts for joy don't work. You've heard us say this before, that in our flesh, you know, the undead part of us, that kind of warring thing with God's Spirit, um, it's an idol factory. Let's just be honest. Every one of us, without the Holy Spirit taking charge of our life, um, it's an idol factory. And so it kind of believes these things that if we buy something, get something, have someone, then we'll find joy. I I want to remind you that you were not made to be satisfied in things Small like that. You you were never created to find ultimate joy like Paul's describing in a thing or a person or a place. This is not how it works out. Looking for anything but God to satisfy and bring joy, it will never deliver. And you know this. You know this already. Because you've gone down, I've gone down roads to find it, get it, doesn't work. Trade it out, go Go again. And you're just constantly trading it out, going again, and you keep going and going and going. And I want you to know something that is the loving hand of the Father. It is a kind act for the Father to be so jealous for his kids to not allow us to go to the wrong places to find satisfaction. He frustrates all of your pursuits until you find your joy in Him. That's His love. It's kind of like any parent here. You got kids. You go. Your kid goes. I want. I want. I want this. I want this. And you go, honey. I can't give you that because I'm seeing the big picture. And this one. This one over here will really bring you joy. You just can't see it. It's the father for all of us. And he is loving when he frustrates our pursuits in anything but him. Do you understand? Okay. One last thought. Do you want joy? A couple of you do. The rest of you just go ahead and be miserable. <laughs> I'll just assume that everyone would nod their head. Joy like this sounds pretty cool, sounds pretty, pretty amazing. I've got one encouragement for you. If you want it, if you really want it, just stay close to the source of it. It isn't complicated. Stay close to the source of joy who is the Father. David knew that. Psalm 16, he says, watch this. Preserve me, O God, for in you I take refuge. I say to the Lord, you are my Lord. I have no good apart from you. I have no good apart from you. The sorrows of those who run after another God, they'll multiply. I have set the Lord always before me because he is at my right hand. I shall not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad and my whole being what? rejoices. My flesh also dwells secure. For you will not abandon my soul to shoal or let your holy one see corruption. You make known to me the path of life and in your presence there is what? Fullness of joy. Now let's back up and read that again because I don't think you got that. In your presence is fullness of joy. Okay, fullness of joy, let's just call it in spite of joy. In the presence of God is the in spite of joy. So if this sounded crazy to you, I want you to know, the closer you get to God, the more real you'll see this. Um, It's interesting, isn't it, that the same action, if you were here last week, we talked about um, anxiousness and worry. The same actions that Paul encourages us to do to avoid anxiousness and worry, and I told you this, to flood your mind with st- so many God thoughts that there's no room for worry. Remember that? That same action is also what brings us to joy. So I'm going to do this. Uh, I'm not being heretical. I'm going to add some words to ver- verse 9 of chapter 4. They'll be in parentheses, so it's not, a, it's not heresy. Um, <laughs> let, let, me, let me read this. Remember, they're my words, but it's contextually totally true. This is Paul's encouragement. And remember, these commands to not be anxious and to have joy always both fit before he ends up with this passage. This is his thrust. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. What you've learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things in the God of peace and joy will be with you. I don't think that's an error. I think that's Paul's thrust to this, is that there is a promise to God's people who fill themselves, fill their minds with who God is and what God is doing, the good, the right, the pure, the commendable, the lovely, the excellent, the worthy of worship. Those things, you overwhelm your mind with those things, I can guarantee you two things. There won't be room for worry and anxiety, and you will have an in spite of joy. Do you understand A joy when you see trouble and you go, I can see God because I'm close to the presence of joy. I'm close to the Father. I'm thinking pure thoughts and right thoughts and worthy of worship thoughts. Does that make sense? Okay, let me encourage us as we pray. Church, this is exactly what God wants for us. To lay aside our anxiousness and to experience the joy in the midst of our trouble because God is doing a good work, yeah? Okay, let's pray. Lord God, I thank you for this truth You know how much we need it, how much we need to hear it over and over and over again because there are moments where we just get a little bit sideways with a difficulty in a world and we can't really perceive how these things can be for our good, but you do. And we can always finish the sentence of all of our circumstances that you're good and you know what you're doing. So God, I just pray for us, your church, here in Gilbert, that, uh, Lord, that we would know um, your joy the kind of joy that expresses itself in every circumstance always. Lord, by the power of your Spirit, that will happen. Help us get close to the source. And We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.